0: You are listening to The Pregnancy Podcast with Vanessa Merton. Hello, thank you for tuning into The Pregnancy Podcast. You can find the full article and all of the evidence and resources that accompanies this episode at pregnancypodcast.com forward slash inducing labor. I want to thank Mommy Steps for their support of this episode Mommy Steps makes insoles specifically designed for pregnancy. And the reason for this is because when you're pregnant, there are a ton of issues that can come up with your feet. And these changes can create lifelong changes to the structure of your feet. Things like your arch collapsing, developing bunions, even your feet going up a shoe size. But the good news is that wearing insoles can actually help prevent some of these issues from happening. I wore these throughout my last pregnancy. They really helped me with some lower back pain and they make different pairs for different kinds of shoes. So I had some in athletic shoes. I had another pair in flats, like just a pair of black flats. I even put a pair in my Toms. These insoles are super comfortable right out of the box, but you can also heat them in your oven and customize them to your own feet. And you can do this up to three times so you can customize them for each trimester of your pregnancy. Please do not wait until you are having any problems with your feet when you're pregnant. I really recommend these at the start of your pregnancy. To check out the insoles, go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash feet and use the promo code feet when you check out to save 20%. I also want to thank Blue Blocks for supporting this episode. You can save 15% off Blue Blocks' blue light blocking glasses with the promo code PREGNANCY. And I recommend these during pregnancy because blue light can have a big impact on your fertility, your pregnancy, and just your overall health. There are a lot of things you can do to reduce the amount of blue light that you are exposed to after sunset, but the easiest way to do this is just to put on blue light blocking glasses. And I love the glasses from Blue Blocks because they block out a specific range of blue and green light, which is the range that's scientifically proven that you need to block out for better sleep. You already know that sleep is so important during your pregnancy, but your sleep And your circadian rhythms also drive your hormones. And blue light exposure can affect hormones like estrogen, progesterone, and prolactin. And those are really important for fertility and pregnancy. These glasses look really good. They're very comfortable. And just wearing these for a few hours before bed is going to block out that blue light that negatively affects your health. And you're going to be sleeping better. You can save 15% off your Blue Blocks glasses with the promo code pregnancy, and you can check those out at pregnancypodcast.com forward slash glasses. This episode, we are talking about inducing labor. And get ready. This is a jam packed episode. There's a lot of links. If you want to go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash inducing labor, you can see a full transcript and everything is linked up that I'm talking about today. We're going to start talking about what induction is, why it could be recommended, talk about all of your options for an induction. We're going to dig into the research, the benefits, the risks, and even what the current recommendations are from groups like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists or the American College of Nurse Midwives. Let's start with your due date. So we measure pregnancy in 40 weeks and your due date is the end of week 40, which is about 280 days from your last menstrual period. Now, that calculation assumes a lot of things. It assumes a 28-day cycle, with ovulation about day 14. And not everybody is going to actually land within those parameters. So your due date is an estimate of when your baby will arrive. It is not an exact science. When you're in those last few weeks of your pregnancy... Those last few weeks are very important to your baby's development. During this time, you're passing maternal antibodies to your baby that are going to help them fight infections in their first few days and weeks of their life. Your baby is putting on weight and gaining strength. They're increasing their iron stores, and they are developing more coordinated sucking and swallowing abilities, which is going to help them eat when they're out And those last few weeks are also when your baby's lungs are maturing and they're preparing for that first breath of air. Your baby during this time is also storing brown fat, which is going to help them maintain their body temperature in those first few weeks after they're born. And so you can see there's a lot going on in those last few weeks. And if your baby's born before all of these processes have had a chance to run their course, it could potentially make a difference in your baby's health. So in those last few weeks, as your baby and your body are getting ready to go into labor, a lot of other things happen. Your placenta is going to trigger an increase in prostaglandins that soften your cervix and prepare it for effacing and dilating. Your levels of estrogen are going to rise. Your levels of progesterone are going to go down. And all of these hormone changes are going to make your uterus more sensitive to oxytocin. That's the hormone responsible for contractions. And as you get closer to going into labor, your baby is going to move further down into your pelvis. And while all of this is going on, you might be noticing that you have extra energy that can maybe allow you to make some final preparations. You may have trouble sleeping. Some people think that that's supposed to prepare you for being awake at all hours with a new baby. There is a lot going on leading up to your birth. And it's really this symphony of everything working together in sync that starts your labor. And that's really how it works in a perfect world, right? Everything works like it's supposed to. Your body's ready, your baby's fully ready, and you just go into labor naturally. You probably know where I'm going with this. Not everything is always gonna go the way that we plan. And a lot of women end up getting an induction to jumpstart their labor. In fact, it's over one and four. The last year that data was available was 2018. And it was over 27% of births in the United States had an induction. So the key to this is knowing when an induction may be medically necessary and when it's better to wait it out. And we're really going to get into the evidence today. An induction would be any procedure that stimulates uterine contractions before labor begins on its own. A care provider could recommend inducing labor for a lot of reasons. Primarily, it's recommended when there's concern for health of mom or baby or if your baby is late, right? Late in quotes there, late if they're past their due date, if you've hit your due date and you haven't gone into labor yet. If your doctor or midwife is recommending an induction, they're going to be considering a lot of factors, and that's going to include your health, the status of your cervix. They're also going to take into account your baby's health, their gestational age and estimated size, what their position is in your uterus. Let's go into some of the reasons why your doctor or midwife may offer or suggest an induction. The first, like I mentioned, is going past your due date. What tends to be kind of the limit in the hospital world, at least, is 42 weeks. A lot of hospitals have a policy that they want to induce 10 days after the expected due date. And while the rules vary state by state, a lot of birth centers may require that you go into labor within 42 weeks. All care providers are going to differ. So if you have any questions about what your care provider's recommendation is, what their policies are, or what their standard practice is, please bring it up with them. Another reason is if it's been 24 hours since your water broke, but you're not having contractions. When your amniotic sac ruptures before labor begins, it's called a premature rupture of the membranes. And in the United States, Generally, it's the policy of hospitals that when your water breaks, there's this 24-hour rule, and basically that you have 24 hours for labor to begin before they're going to want to induce it. And the reason for that is that by your water breaking, you're at an increased risk for infection once that amniotic sac has ruptured. Another reason an induction could be recommended is if there's not enough amniotic fluid, Amniotic fluid helps protect your baby and the umbilical cord from any trauma or infection. And your levels of amniotic fluid are going to fluctuate depending on a lot of things. How hydrated you are, how much your baby is swallowing and urinating, your baby's kidney function, and the levels of your amniotic fluid can be measured with an ultrasound. So if your care provider does an ultrasound late in your pregnancy and they're concerned about those fluid levels... You could be diagnosed with this, and this happens to a very small percentage. The best estimates that I could find was between 1% and 5%, and that number does start to increase once you go past 41 weeks, because then you tend to see amniotic fluid start decreasing. At 41 weeks, it affects more like 12% of expecting moms. Another reason is if it's suspected that you're having a very large baby. There's a lot of reasons that some babies can be larger than others. That could be just due to genetics. It could be due to underlying health issues, something like gestational diabetes. There's no way to accurately measure a baby's size and weight before birth. The best measurements that we have are from ultrasounds, and they're not 100% accurate. A big baby, the technical term for that is macrosomium, and that is a baby who weighs over 4,500 grams, or 9 pounds 15 ounces. The main concern with birthing a big baby is the risk of shoulder dystocia. And that happens when their shoulders get stuck during birth and doctors consider that an emergency because there's a potential for your baby to sustain an injury. In cases of gestational diabetes, the evidence recommending induction before 41 weeks to avoid a big baby is pretty weak. The World Health Organization does not support induction for gestational diabetes unless the condition is not controlled or in cases where the placenta is not providing enough nourishment for the baby. On the opposite of that, another reason for an induction could be for a suspected small baby. This is an intrauterine growth restriction at term. That's the technical term, which means your baby is small for their gestational age. Just like with a big baby, that can be genetics. Some babies are just small, and some have restricted growth because they're not getting enough nourishment from the placenta. Again, as with big babies, they're going to be taking these measurements from an ultrasound, It's going to also rely on accurate dating of your due date. And some additional reasons for an induction could be if you have a medical condition that could put you or your baby at risk, like high blood pressure or gestational diabetes, if you had an infection in your uterus, or if your placenta had begun to deteriorate. So you can see there's a lot of reasons your care provider could suggest an induction, Another reason could be just pure choice or convenience. And that would be an elective induction. This may be a consideration if you live far from the hospital or your birth center, if you have a history of speedy deliveries, if you prefer to give birth with a specific practitioner and you want to go into labor when you know that they're going to be present. And in those cases, If you're considering an elective induction, your care provider should be confirming your baby's gestational age is at least 39 weeks, preferably 40, right? We want them to be ready when it's time. And any decision to induce labor should be discussed with your doctor or midwife in detail because you want to weigh any potential risks with those benefits. There are also a handful of reasons that an induction would not be recommended, that would be if you had a prior C-section with a classical incision, or if you had some type of major surgery on your uterus. If that does apply to you, your care provider may want to avoid certain medications just to reduce the risk of a uterine rupture. Induction's not recommended if you have placenta previa, which is a condition where the placenta is blocking your cervix. If your baby is transverse, meaning they're lying crosswise in your uterus, or if you have an active genital herpes infection. Let's talk about your options for inducing labor, and there's quite a few of them. All of these procedures take place at a birth center or a hospital where your care provider can monitor you and your baby, and it's possible that you would use a combination of these methods. The first is a membrane sweep. So your doctor or midwife can strip or sweep the amniotic membranes to try and start labor. To do this, they're going to take a gloved finger or a couple fingers and insert it in your vagina just beyond your cervical opening, and they're going to rotate and try and separate the amniotic sac from the wall of your uterus. Technically, this doesn't induce labor, but it might speed up the beginning of spontaneous labor, especially if your cervix already has started to dilate or efface. And this procedure can cause some intense cramping and spotting. If you do have your membrane swept and you leave your care provider's office and there's any bleeding heavier than a normal period, that's a big red flag. Please contact your doctor midwife right away. A Cochrane review that reviewed 44 studies, including almost 7,000 women, concluded that membrane sweeping may be effective in achieving a spontaneous onset of labor. But they did note that the evidence for this was of low certainty. Compared to no other intervention, they found that women who underwent membrane sweeping may be more likely to go into labor spontaneously. There was no difference in outcomes when compared to prostaglandins. We're going to talk about those in a minute. And not enough data to compare this to some of the other methods that we're going to talk about. Another study found that to avoid one formal induction, that sweeping of the membranes must be performed in eight women. Another study did a similar calculation and found that for every six women who undergo this procedure, one formal induction is avoided. Of course, the only surefire way to go into labor is to wait. But if you want an option that's non-pharmacological and that's pretty minimally invasive, then sweeping your membranes could be something to talk to your doctor or midwife about. Typically, your care provider will recommend a vaginal exam before an induction. And the purpose of that is to look at your cervix because they want to see if it started to open, to dilate into a face or thin. The measurements of your cervix are going to be used to compute a Bishop score. That's a scoring system that basically rates your cervix on a scale of 0 to 13, So cervical dilation, effacement, and station where your baby's head is positioned are scored zero to three points each. And then cervical position and consistency are scored zero to two points. So taking each of those measurements into account, they give it a score. If your total score is eight or higher, that's considered favorable for an induction. Some providers may only take into account dilation, effacement, and station, and they're going to give each of those a score of zero to three. So on that zero to nine scale, a score of five or higher would be regarded as favorable. And you'll hear when we're talking about some more of the evidence behind these methods, the status of your cervix can have an impact on what methods of induction your care provider recommends and how effective those methods will be. If you do not have a favorable cervix, your care provider may suggest ripening your cervix. There's a couple of ways to do this, either a mechanical dilator or a synthetic prostaglandin. A mechanical dilator does kind of what it sounds like. It opens your cervix physically. And then a synthetic prostaglandin is a medication that you either take orally or that's placed in your vagina. Mechanical dilators manually force your cervix to open. There's two options for these a balloon catheter, or a hygroscopic dilator. For the first, your care provider is going to insert a small balloon-tipped catheter beyond your cervical opening, and then they inject saline through the catheter, which expands the balloon, and that's going to cause your cervix to widen. The other option, a hygroscopic dilator, is most commonly made from laminaria seaweed, And for this, your care provider inserts some small rods that are made from the seaweed into your cervix. And as it absorbs moisture and gets thicker, it's going to open your cervix. The hope with either of these procedures is that within 12 to 24 hours, you're going to have a more favorable cervix that's begun to dilate in a phase. And as a heads up, both of these procedures can cause some cramping. In a study in Japan, they compared these different types of dilators. They had over 17,000 participants, and they found that the group who used a hygroscopic dilator had fewer instrumental deliveries, roughly 15% compared to 17% in the other groups. The hygroscopic group also had a lower rate of postpartum hemorrhage. It was 33% compared to 37 to 38% in the other groups. There was no big difference in the frequency of uterine infection between the groups. Those all ranged between one and three percent. They did note that balloon catheters have been associated with a risk of umbilical cord prolapse. That's because the balloon can create a space between the cervical opening and your baby's head, and it's possible that the umbilical cord can slip down. That did not happen to anyone in the hygroscopic group, but it did happen in the other groups. Even then, it was still rare that incidence was 0.1% or less. Overall, these researchers concluded that cervical ripening with a hygroscopic dilator appeared to be a safer method. A Cochrane review looked at mechanical dilators, comparing them to other methods of induction. Overall, they said that a balloon dilator has a better safety profile than medications. They stated it tended to be as effective as prostaglandins, but less effective than misoprostol. I've mentioned prostaglandins a couple of times. There's two types of these. There's misoprostol, which goes by the brand name Cytotec, and there's dinoprostone, which goes by the brand names Cervidil and Prepidil. Both of these medications ripen your cervix and cause contractions. If you are administered either of these, your care provider is going to be monitoring your contractions and monitoring your baby's heart rate. Misoprostol was originally approved as a medication to prevent ulcers, but today it's commonly used to induce labor, especially in the United States. But it doesn't technically have approval from the FDA for this use. In the United States, using misoprostol to induce labor is using it off-label. There are some warnings about the risks associated with its use for induction that are still on the label, and misoprostol is very effective at causing uterine contractions and ripening the cervix. The other prostaglandin is dinoprostone. That goes by the trade names cervidil and prepidil. So it's similar to mesoprostol. It also is going to soften the cervix and cause uterine contractions. But this drug is approved for labor induction by the FDA. One of the risks associated with using prostaglandins is uterine hyperstimulation, meaning it could overstimulate your uterus to contract too much. Some other side effects include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and fever. In comparing both of these options, a systematic review and meta-analysis that included 10 different studies showed that misoprostol was more effective, but the dinoprostone was safer. In the misoprostol group, uterine hyperstimulation was more common, and fewer women required synthetic oxytocin. The other outcomes of both drugs, like APGAR scores and cesarean section rates, were really similar. Most of the studies in this analysis were small scale trials, and you really find that with a lot of the research on labor induction. So they concluded, as we almost always conclude with these studies, that more research is needed. There have been some concerns raised associated with misoprostol or cytotech about hyperstimulating the uterus, about prolonged contractions, postpartum hemorrhage, uterine rupture. Ina Mae who's the most respected figure in midwifery, has been very outspoken against the use of misoprostol. And Aina has a summary of articles about this drug on her website. If you want to read more about that, I will link to that list of articles. Another method that could be used to induce labor is to break your water. That's known as an amniotomy or rupturing the membranes. That's typically only done if your cervix is partially dilated and thins, if your baby's head is deep in the pelvis, and your doctor or midwife would do this by making a small opening in the amniotic sac with a thin plastic hook. It kind of looks like a knitting needle. When this happens, you might feel a warm gush of fluid when that sac opens. If your care provider does rupture your membranes, they're going to be monitoring your baby's heart rate both before and after the procedure. They're going to be examining the amniotic fluid for any traces of meconium, which would be fecal waste. They'll be monitoring all of that to make sure everything's going well. One randomized controlled trial that included 585 women split them into two groups. And so one of the groups had an amniotomy, the other group did not. 73% 73% of the total woman in this study had more than one agent for induction. So unfortunately, we can't just look at amniotomy alone. They found that the average time from induction to delivery was 19 hours in the amniotomy group compared with 21.3 hours in the group who did not have their waters broken. The rates of cesarean did not differ The rate of chorioamnionitis, which is an infection, was 11.5% in the group who had their waters broken and 8.5% in the other group. So it was a higher risk of infection. And there were two cord prolapses in the group that had their waters broken and none in the other group. Otherwise, the groups didn't differ in the rate of confirmed or suspected neonatal sepsis or admission to the NICU. Overall, this procedure does appear to shorten the length of labor, but there are also some risks associated with it. They may not happen often, but something that you would definitely want to consider if you were having a conversation about this procedure with your doctor or midwife. A Cochrane review looked specifically at amniotomy for shortening spontaneous labor, and they found that the evidence does not support routinely breaking waters for women in labor. So just that in the event that you're thinking, oh, if you just have your water broken, it's going to speed up your labor by an average of two hours. That's something to keep in mind. I've mentioned synthetic oxytocin a few times so far. So when you naturally go into labor, it's the hormone oxytocin that's responsible for causing contractions. And there's a synthetic version of this that's most commonly known by the brand name Pitocin. This is most effective at inducing labor if your cervix has already begun to dilate and thin. Your doctor can give you this medication through an IV, and this is also something that could be recommended to augment or stimulate contractions if you're already in labor, but it's not progressing as quickly as you or your doctor or midwife would like. If you are using Pitocin, your care provider is going to be monitoring your contractions, monitoring your baby's heart rate continuously. And Pitocin generally causes stronger contractions, which could be more uncomfortable, and it can lower your baby's heart rate. That's the reason that your doctor is going to be using continuous fetal monitoring because they want to keep an eye on that heart rate. The amount of synthetic oxytocin that you're administered can be adjusted. So if you do decide to go this route, you can start with a lower dose and gradually increase it if necessary. There's a Cochrane review that looked at oxytocin alone for inducing labor. This review included 61 studies with more than 12,000 women. Overall, the quality of the evidence was generally poor, Of the 61 included studies, only three have been published since 2000. The authors noted that the use of oxytocin alone appears to be of decreasing interest to researchers. So that could be why we're not seeing more current research on it. The review concluded that oxytocin is an effective method for induction compared with expectant management, which is basically do nothing and just wait and watch that oxytocin results in more births within 24 hours, and that active management with oxytocin will result in more cesarean sections and epidurals. Oxytocin induction appears safe with very few reports of severe adverse effects, and in comparing oxytocin with prostaglandins, oxytocin was less effective and resulted in more cesareans. It's very difficult to synthesize all of the data that compares one type of induction method to another. If you're considering an induction, please talk to your doctor or midwife about all of your options and work through which method is going to have the best risk-benefit analysis for your specific situation. When we're talking about this risk-benefit analysis, The benefit, the best case scenario, is that an induction leads to a successful vaginal birth with no side effects or complications. And whether or not an induction goes exactly the way you want it, I mean, you get to meet your baby at the end of it. That's the best benefit possible, right? So your job is to just make the best informed decision for you and your baby. So listening to this episode, you're already off to a great start. I know that we have covered a lot so far in this episode. Let's just review some of the risks associated with inducing labor. Premature birth is one of them. We touched on this talking about your due date. A premature birth poses risks like respiratory issues. That is why it's so critical to be accurate with your due date as early in your pregnancy as possible. Because if you were to schedule an induction and your due date is off by a week, your baby may not be full term. And babies that are born prematurely are at a higher risk of respiratory problems, low blood sugar, jaundice, irregular heart rate, and the inability to stabilize their temperature. They're also more likely to have difficulty establishing breastfeeding. Some medications that are used to induce labor, like synthetic oxytocin or prostaglandin, might provoke too many contractions, which can diminish your baby's oxygen supply and lower your baby's heart rate. If you're considering an amniotomy or breaking your waters, once that sac breaks, there is a risk that germs or bacteria can get in more easily and cause an infection. So rupturing your membranes does increase your risk for infection. Remember, that's the same reason that a lot of hospitals have a 24-hour rule. It's to minimize the risk of infection. And I have a whole other podcast episode that will be linked up that digs into the evidence and research. And talks about the evidence on that. We touched on umbilical cord prolapse. That's when the umbilical cord slips into the vagina before your baby does. The risk with that is that if the cord gets compressed, it can decrease your baby's supply of oxygen. We touched on uterine rupture, which is a rare but serious complication in which your uterus tears along an open scar line if you've had a previous C-section or a major uterine surgery. And in the case of a uterine rupture, you'd be looking at an emergency cesarean. That's a very rare complication. Labor induction can also increase the risk of uterine atony. That means that your uterine muscles don't work properly to contract after you give birth. So if it's not properly contracting and you're having trouble closing off those blood vessels after your placenta detaches, that can cause some postpartum hemorrhage. I've touched on cesarean birth a little bit. There's a lot of data around this. The use of induction of labor has increased in the United States at the same time that we've seen an increase in cesarean delivery rates. So in 1990, 9.5% of births were induced. In 2008, this number rose to 23.1%. I looked up the stat for 2018. It was over 27%. So because these two things have gone up together, it's been widely assumed for a long time that induction of labor itself increases the risk of a cesarean delivery. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, that's not exactly the case. If an induction is not successful, your care provider may suggest a cesarean section. If your induction's not successful, the technical term for that is failed induction. ACOG states that if mom and baby are not showing signs of distress, that cesarean deliveries may be avoided by allowing longer durations of induction or longer duration of oxytocin before deeming the induction a failure. So if you have an induction, and you're not going into labor, be sure to talk about all your options with your doctor or midwife. If you want to avoid a cesarean section if possible, have a conversation about that. If you're not going into labor, find out what time frames they're looking for. If you can try another method of induction, um, if you can wait, we'll talk about some questions towards the end of this episode that you can specifically ask your care provider. How long does an induction take? The length of time between an induction and when you go into labor depends on a lot of things. It depends on how you respond to the procedure. If your cervix needs to ripen, it could take a couple of days before labor starts. If your cervix has already begun to soften and efface and dilate, it could be as quick as a few hours. There's a trial called the arrive trial. A randomized trial of induction versus expectant management. And that was a randomized controlled trial that compared elective induction at 39 weeks with expectant management. Expectant management being just watchful waiting instead of doing any kind of intervention. This trial included over 6,000 low-risk women that were split into two groups. And one of those groups was induced at 39 weeks. There wasn't a specific induction protocol. The recommendation was that if a patient had a favorable cervix, that they would undergo an induction with oxytocin, and participants that did not have a favorable cervix were expected to do a cervical ripening in conjunction with or followed by oxytocin. And even then, what method was used for cervical ripening was left up to the discretion of the doctor. It was suggested to the providers that were all participating in this that women should be allowed at least 12 hours after completion of any ripening or rupture of the membranes or use of oxytocin before considering an induction failed. So you have two groups of women, one that are getting induced at 39 weeks and another group that you're not doing any interventions to. You're just waiting and watching to see when they'll naturally go into labor. The main conclusion of this study was that induction of labor at 39 weeks in low-risk women did not result in a significantly lower frequency of adverse perinatal outcome, and it actually resulted in a significantly lower incidence of cesarean delivery. So looking at the women in this study, they were all low risk. That means they had no complications. They were pregnant with a single baby who was in a head down position that this was their first pregnancy. The big surprising outcome was that it resulted in a significantly lower incidence of cesarean delivery. To give some context to what's considered significantly lower, 18.6% of the group that had an induction gave birth via cesarean compared to 22.2% of the expectant management group. So their data suggested that one cesarean delivery may be avoided for every 28 deliveries among low-risk first-time mothers who plan to undergo an elective induction at 39 weeks. This study was a really big deal. From an evidence-based standpoint, it provided a lot of data to support offering induction at 39 weeks. And there was some push in the medical community to routinely induce labor at 39 weeks for all women who were low risk. There was an editorial published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology that did not like using the term elective. They said that when the term elective is applied to a medical intervention, it implies that it's not really necessary. And that's certainly not the case when it comes to 39-week induction. The arrive trial provides grade A evidence that labor induction provided benefit with no harm to women and their infants. They went on to state these inductions are not elective. We believe that the word elective should be moved completely in our discussions and professional documents about 39 week inductions. We propose a more accurate term might be risk reducing. So you can see that the arrive trial made A pretty big splash in the medical community. And I agree, the language that we use is important. And there's a lot of factors to consider when you're evaluating the risks and benefits of inducing labor. And for any intervention, there should always be informed consent. The biggest piece of informed consent is that ultimately you have the choice to opt in or opt out of a procedure. And in some sense, maybe all procedures are elective, right? because it's ultimately your choice whether or not to do it, but some have more evidence than others to support them. The ARRIVE trial also prompted the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to change their views. In the past, they stated that labor should be induced only when it's more risky for the baby to remain inside the mother's uterus than to be born. But when the ARRIVE trial came out in 2018, they changed their guidelines. Their recommendation now states, based on the findings demonstrated in this trial, it's reasonable for obstetricians and healthcare facilities to offer elective induction for labor to low risk women at 39 weeks of gestation. They also go on to state that consideration for enactment of this elective induction of labor intervention should not only take into account the trial findings, but this recommendation may be conditional upon the values and preferences of the pregnant woman, the resources available, and the setting in which the intervention will be implemented. They end it with a collaborative discussion with shared decision-making should take place with the pregnant woman. In contrast to ACOG, the American College of Nurse Midwives released a statement after the affirmed trial came out, and they said that they recommended no change in their opinion in response to this study. Their official position statement includes several points. They state that spontaneous labor offers substantial benefit to the mom and newborn and disruption of that process without an evidence-based medical indication represents a risk for potential harm. Another point they mention is that informed consent prior to labor induction should include discussion of the normal process of labor and the benefits and potential harms of induction, including the optimal method to use during the induction process. If you have any questions about inducing labor, if you want to explore that as an option, if you want to find out when you can do that, what methods you should be using, please discuss them with your doctor or midwife. They're your partner in making sure that you and your baby are staying healthy, and they're there to support your choices. Like with any intervention, you should have all of the information, the risks, the benefits so that you can decide what is best for you and your baby. There are some questions that you can ask your care provider to help determine whether induction is the right call for you. These questions are adapted from the BRAIN acronym, and these can be applied to any intervention. The first is, what are the benefits of an induction, and why do I need this procedure is a question you could ask if they're recommending it. Next is, what are the risks of the procedure? And while we often talk about that risk-benefit analysis, some other questions you should ask, what are the alternatives? And do you have different options for how you induce labor? Another thing to think about is what does your gut say? What's your intuition tell you about inducing labor? Are you thinking like, yes, I think this is the right call. I've had enough being pregnant. I'm ready to meet my baby. This is what my gut is telling me to do. Or are you getting the opposite? Is your gut saying, "Mm, maybe it's not quite time to do this yet? The last question, which is by far my favorite, is what happens if you do nothing? Or can you delay an induction? Can you wait a day or a week or several days? And what would be the risks of postponing an induction? With a lot of interventions, if you ask that question, what happens if we do nothing? The answer is nothing. So that could be something to consider too. If you can wait a few days, if everything else is pointing to maybe you want to wait, on the flip side of that, if the answer to that question is, well, if we don't do it, then you are at risk for X, Y, and Z, then that could be something important to consider as well. To recap today's episode, I know there was a lot of information in here for you today we talked about induction. We talked about all of the reasons that an induction could be recommended, the different conditions that would lead to that. We talked about having an elective induction or a risk-reducing induction, if you want to go along with that opinion. We talked about all of the different methods of inducing labor, from sweeping your membranes or stripping your membranes to using medications like Cytotec, Cervidil, Prepidil. We talked about synthetic oxytocin, Pitocin. And we got into a lot of different studies that compared all of these different methods. Hopefully, this gives you a pretty good background so that when you are having a discussion with your doctor or midwife about induction, that you speak the language, right? You're going to have a decent background and a basis of knowledge around this already. I want to thank you for tuning into the Pregnancy Podcast today. I hope that you find this episode helpful. As always, you can contact me, Vanessa, at PregnancyPodcast.com. You can read the full long article that accompanies this episode and see all of the resources at PregnancyPodcast.com forward slash inducing labor. Thank you again to Mommy Steps for their support of this episode. These insoles can help prevent a lot of issues that can happen to your feet when you're pregnant. And you can even heat them in your oven and customize them to your feet for each trimester of your pregnancy. To check out these insoles, visit PregnancyPodcast.com forward slash feet and use the promo code feet when you check out to save 20%. And thank you so much to Blue Blocks for their support. You can save 15% off blue light blocking glasses with the promo code Pregnancy. Blue light can affect hormones like estrogen, progesterone, prolactin. These are all so important for your fertility and during pregnancy. So the easiest way to block out that negative blue light that can impact you after sunset is to wear blue light blocking glasses. To check these out, go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash glasses, and you can save 15% with the promo code pregnancy.